What's good, what's good, what's good, family? Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Youth Work. Today, you're going to hear an interview between myself and Dr. Bettina Love, who is my sis, my homegirl, my mentor. Um, she is someone that has taught me a lot uh, about the higher ed world and also about loving and respecting black women, which I value and appreciate. So thank you so much for that, sis. Uh, we sit down, we have a very candid conversation about a range of things. We talk about Ahmaud Arbery. She actually lives in Atlanta um, and is raising a family, right? Has two children. So talks about, you know, what it's like to have to sort of uh, discuss these topics with young folks, right? Particularly folks that are um, that are little, right? Little, little younger children, smaller children. Um, she also talks about her upbringing in Rochester, New York. And what strikes me about that conversation is how she talks about needing an entire community of resources to get her to where she is, right? Um, and that's really important for us to pay attention to as youth workers. I'm always telling folks that you know, when it comes to mentoring, we have this we have this very sort of siloed idea of one to one, one person responsible for young for one young person or one adult responsible for one young person. We have to continue to remind ourselves that it literally does take a village to raise our children, children, that it requires a community of folks and a community of resources to to support our young people to resource them, right, to get them to where they need to go. So she talks about, you know, being raised in Rochester, New York, by an entire community of folks who put forth all kinds of efforts and resources to get her uh, to where she is today. We also talk a little bit about her book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, which I'm sure most of you are reading. But if you aren't, I definitely will have the link and information about the book in the show notes, in the episode show notes. So definitely make sure that you check those out. And finally, we talk about the abolitionist teaching network. So she founded and actually just launched this year, the abolitionist teaching network, um, whose mission is to develop and support educators to fight injustice within their schools and communities. This is amazing work that she's doing. She has since launching the abolitionist teaching network, dropped podcast episodes, uh, dropped toolkits, um, has already featured webinars and panels. So really amazing work um, around abolition in schools, um, including community educators, community organizers, parents, social workers, everyone, right, that, that's um, coming together to organize and take action for educational freedom. So I'll definitely have also the link to the Abolish Teaching Network in the show notes. This is an amazing episode. A lot of gems dropped. I've been listening to it actually a couple times just for some in inspiration and ideas. You're going to enjoy it. Let's get this work. This is Dr. Tori weaston certain and you're listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, fam? What's good, fam? Welcome back to another week of Reimagining Youth Work. Today, I have Dr. Bettina Love on the podcast. <laughs> Dr. Bettina Love is an award-winning author and the Athletic Association Endowed Professor at the University of Georgia. She's one of the field's most esteemed educational researchers. Her work is concerned with how educators working with parents and communities can build communal, civically engaged schools rooted in abolitionist teaching. We definitely got to get into that. 
<laughs> with a goal of intersectional social justice for equitable classrooms. She is also the author of the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching in the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. What's good, family? Ah, it's <laughs> wonderful to be here with you. That's what's good. I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> and I know that the folks listening, they need to hear all of this, all of it. They needed to hear the intro. <laughs> they needed to hear the greeting, the whole nine. How is everything? Everything is good in Atlanta. You know, I'm in Atlanta, I'm in Georgia, and it's it's a tough place to live some days, but I love it here. I love Atlanta. I love this is home. My kids are going to be raised here. I've been here almost 12 years, but, um, you know, it's difficult some days uh, living in the South, particularly Atlanta. Mm. You know, this is... Uh, I'm miles away from the whole situation in Brunswick, Georgia. Mm, yeah. So, um, you know, you know, we just lift up the names and do the work um, for my daughter. Yeah. So, you know, that's Georgia right now. So start. So let's just start off with that. You know, we're going to do an intro question. But before we get to that intro question, you being that close and you have two two young folks in your household, you have two kids. Um, and I know we're, you know, we tend to be sort of overly concerned with this kind of violence against just black boys and men, but it of course happens to black women and girls mm -hmm. as well. Um, you know, just talk about your position as a parent and, you know, watching what's happening with Ahmad and really how that translates um, into your work or how that spills over into your work. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't get around it in any way. You know, I'm also, I also run right now. My buddy's on that treadmill downstairs. Cause I'm like, I'm afraid to even try to get out there. Mm. You just, you know, it's those days where you, you know, what's happening, you know, the injustice and then something like a black man running, mm -hmm. right. Literally doing what you are supposed to do for your health. Yeah. So as a parent, it just, you know, you just want to keep them inside. You want to, you want to tell them the truth, but then you don't want to tell them the truth. So, you know, we had a conversation. We were driving um, a few days ago and one of the windows of a restaurant had his name up there. And my son asked me, you know, what's that? And I, you know, I kind of told him the story and I said, you know, this is what happened. Um, he was running and these people were mean and nasty and, you know, they took his life. And, you know, and you just find yourself having those conversations more than you should with your child. Yeah. You know, my wife is really good at this idea of we have to find balance between they still get to have a childhood. Yeah. They still get to have, they still get to be whimsical. Like, you know, like my son right now is listening to stories, podcasts, right? No screens, no TVs on. You just listen to a podcast. Yeah. Um, so it's just trying to find that balance. And then, you know, for that, when you say, how does it impact your work? Is that, you know, my work is trying to find ways in which to think about joy in black kids' lives, yeah. because we need joy. We need to offset all this trauma with something. And so schools and folks and communities have to be places of joy, because if not, we'll get bogged down with all this oppression and all this violence against our black body. Right. So you're, I mean, you are a critical activist and a critical educator for sure. And how old are your kids? They'll be, they'll be 10 next month. And they let, and let me know every day. <laughs> Which is beautiful. But as you talk about like having the conversations with them and trying to balance that to make sure that they have joy. One of the questions folks ask me in the field all the time, 
you know, how young is too young? When should I start having these conversations? And as a practitioner, if I'm not, you know, the parent, when yeah. is it okay for me to have these conversations in terms of age and balance that out with they still get to be a kid? So I have, I, I get that question a lot and I get one simple answer. When you start to lie, that's when you should tell the truth. Mm. So as soon like, you know, Christopher Columbus, as soon as you start telling that child that lie, yes, that's when you have to, you have to tell the truth. And so I don't think we have to, you know, for even with my own kids, I don't think I have to tell the full range, right? So I didn't tell that they hunted that man down like a dog. I didn't mm. tell, you know, how they pretty much hunted him. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't go into those details. You know, I just said that it was unjustified. It was wrong. And it was mean. And there's racist, hateful people in this world who don't like you because of the color of your skin. And there's people who love you because of your color of your skin. There's yeah. people who see how brilliant you are because of the color of your skin. And so you have to find that balance. But what I won't do is lie. Yeah. And so I will find a way to figure out to tell him the truth that's age appropriate. And my daughter to tell her the truth that's age appropriate. But what I'm not going to do is lie. And I think that's where we have to say, you know, yes, kids don't need to know all the, the details, but you also don't need to lie to them. Right. So I, just tell the truth. Yeah. I, I actually think that's, I've never heard someone put it that way, but I think that that makes, it makes perfect sense. And it's something that, you know, when I think back throughout my childhood and I was in a, you know, a pretty woke family too. My grandmother, you know, was, was raised by the black Panthers, like yeah. in Oakland and Vallejo. So it was always pretty, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of black empowerment, et cetera. And that's one of the things that I realized I was getting in my household. Um, maybe over other young people is like, I just wasn't being lied to. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I ever put it that way, but. You know, my son said the most craziest thing to me just the other day. So, my kids have been really brilliant and really beautiful about this whole pandemic. And their birthday is next month. They're turning 10. Okay. They have moved on to their 11th birthday already. <laughs> They're like 2020 a while. So they've been planning their 11th birthday all day. Like that keeps them engaged. They go on Airbnb, like they pricing out everything. So that, you know, that's a little project that they got that they love. Right. Um, so they'll be like, we're going in our room to talk business. And I know that's about their birthday. But he was thinking about who he was going to invite. And he was like, Bubby, I want to invite one of my white friends. I said, okay. But he said, I feel like when we talk about black stuff, they, their face, they make a face. And yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to invite them to my birthday and we talk about black stuff and they making those faces. Mm-hmm. And I was like, perfect conversation. Yes. So we had a conversation and then I showed them Rihanna's clip, pull up. Oh yeah. I was like, pull up. They want to eat bread with you. They want to kick it with you. They want to talk with you. They want to call themselves friends. We protest and we march and we talking about these issues and they can't pull up. Cut them. <laughs> it's like, okay. But I mean, just for him to see that even at nine, we're talking about issues in school and his, his white friends make that face or cringe or don't know what to say. It, he's even uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. So, and that's why we got to tell the truth. Yeah. They notice it earlier on. They notice oh, it really early on. Early on. And he's like, I don't even want you at my party with that. <laughs> if, only adult, if only adults could get on that level. Right. Right. <laughs> that part. Right. <laughs> That's why we got you. So when they become adults, they good. We working on it. That's, that's, that's what we need. <laughs> we working on it. 
So let's talk, let's, let's start digging into a little bit about your story, how it connects to the work that you're doing today. Uh, as you talk, I'm probably going to ask some questions about your book. But um, <laughs> I think one of the trends that I've been seeing as I've been interviewing folks for this podcast is that, I mean, this is true, I think, universally, but specifically for this is that everyone's life story mm. really has had a profound impact on why they have chosen to do the work that they do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. talk to us about, you know, you and, and, <laughs> and, and your work. So, you know, I was born and raised in upstate New York. I'm an upstate New Yorker, Rochester, New York. And, you know, one thing about Rochester, New Yorkers, upstate New York, we walk around with a chip on our shoulder because we ain't New York. Okay. And so we always mad. You know, people like, where, you know, where are you from? You say upstate New York, where? You're like, nah, bro, nah, we ain't going to do that. So you know, I just, I grew up, but I grew up in a very loving um, community of folks who just cared for kids. And I was one of those kids, my mom and dad, you know, my mom, she opened up grocery stores. Um, she was a manager of like convenience stores. My father was a cab driver. So I had really working class parents who worked 40, 50 hours a week. So you were pretty much on your own. I was a latchkey kid. Um, I have two older siblings, but much older than me. My sister's 10 years older than me. My brother's 14 years older than me. So by the time I was eight, everybody was gone working or going off to college. And I just, you know, I lived in a community where people just looked after you. I would, hey, where are you supposed to be? Go and get your little butt home. Okay. <laughs> I just lived yeah. in one of those beautiful communities growing up. And I just, I'm always just so thankful for that. From the drug dealers who were like, yo, something about to go down. You need to get out of here. From the old women that were like, listen, this is what you need to do. I had all the boys and girls clubs, all the recreation yeah. centers. And I just grew up. I opened those things up. Um, I tell people when I was 12 years old, I'm the janitor. And this is, you know, this is, this is the beauty of what I had. When I was 12 years old, the, I was at the recreation center so much that the janitor allowed me to work under the table. Oh, wow. So I would get there in the morning and clean the toilets. I would get there in the morning and, you know, he made me work for that money. Yeah. And he paid me $50 a week out of his own pocket, Mr. Gray. Wow. Out of his own pocket. I paid for my school. I had me out dip set going back to school. I have my sneakers. But I opened, I opened and closed that joint. And then by the time the kids got there, I would play with the kids and play basketball. But I'd already been there three hours cleaning up. So, I mean, I just, I, that was me. And he was an older black man. It was me and him in that place. First thing in the morning by ourselves. Nothing but the best. He was upstanding guy. Yeah. You know, and I'm a little 12-year-old kid just trying to make some money. And that's, that's my relationship. I was 16 years old. I got my official job on my 16th birthday. Wow. They held the, my community held the job for me. The job was supposed to start at the end of the school year, like June 26th. I didn't turn 16 to July 6th. They held the job for me. July 6th, I remember first thing in the morning, I got up, I put on Outcash. You need to get <laughs> up, get out, and get something. Yes. Don't let the days of your life pass by. Yep. You get up, get out, and get something because you and I got to do for you and I. And I took my little butt to work, 16 years old, on my 16th birthday, and I worked. And I worked at the rec center. So, I mean, I just had people. I worked the night shift because I had to go to school. Mm -hmm. They took me home every night. Somebody took me home. So I just, I just grew up where just Black folks cared for you. Mm -hmm. They loved you. They found a way to get resources to you. I tell people, I grew up on the magical school bus. You know, this is back in the day where, hey, you want to go on this field trip? Get in the bus. 
And you just got on the bus. You didn't even know where you was going. There wasn't no permission slip. They weren't calling you. Yo, we going to so-and-so. You going? Yeah, you get on the bus. And I just grew up in a loving, thoughtful, caring community of black folks. And we didn't have money, but we had each other. Right. And it just it just shaped me in ways to care about, you know, black folks and and to know what we can do. Yeah. When we have the power and the creativity and ingenuity and even with limited resources, what we were able to do, what my community did for me Mm -hmm. um, was just beautiful. Yeah. And then you went off to college and then later on became a teacher. And so, yeah, on on a basketball scholarship. That's the only way I went off to college. That's what's up. All day, jump shot all day. I see you. So when you became a teacher, though, talk about the differences between what you were seeing in the classroom community and the school community versus your community, or if there, you know, if there even was a difference. Oh, there was a big time difference. Um, You know, I had black teachers who loved me, who care again, who loved me. I remember um, I talk about this actually in my book, Mr. Clayton. I was around nine or 11 years old and I just picked up a basketball and I was infatuated. I wouldn't put it down. There's nothing I wanted to do. And I would play ball before school. Yeah. And I would come to school dirty, like just dirty, like a dirty little kid, (laughs) just a dirty little street kid. Nobody (laughs) parents. My mother would leave. My mother would leave 6am to go to work. My dad left 6am to go to work. I go to school. They don't even know. Yeah. So I'm just playing ball. I go to school sweaty, dirty. Mr. Clayton was like, love. He called everybody by that last name. That's the that's who gave me the name love. Love. I don't know what's going on at your house, but don't you come in this classroom dirty? Mm-hmm. He's like, I see you outside in the morning playing basketball. You got a little game, but what you're going to do is bring a change of clothes. Mm-hmm. Iron them, too. I was like, iron them? He's like, I want them clothes iron. <laughs> And you're going to bring a change of clothes. I'm not telling you to stop playing basketball. What you're not going to do is come in here looking crazy. Mm-hmm. Those were the teachers I had. Yeah. Miss Johnson was my first teacher from the South. I had never met anybody like Southern. My, even though my grandmother was Southern, my family was Southern. I didn't, I never met anybody like a professional who was Southern like that. Yeah. Man, Miss Johnson was from Louisiana. She did not play. She was tall like me. She is long. Um, skinny, and she just would just wrap you up in love and wrap you up in fear. And so I, I had these like amazing black teachers who loved me and cared for me and talked to me like I was one of their own. Mm-hmm. And then when I, you know, I became a teacher, I'm expecting to be able to see that and do that, and it just mm-hmm. wasn't there. I'm expecting our teachers to live in the communities. Yep. They lived in the communities. I knew where I knew Mr. I knew I had to go to the grocery store and be right because Mr. Clay could be there any minute. And so that's the community that I grew up in this little place called Rochester, New York. And, um, you know, it's sadly the situation that I grew up in is gone mm-hmm. and the schools that I grew up in, you know, they are, they're still there, but they're not as dense, as heavily populated um, with, with black and brown folks who are conscious and woke black and brown folks. Right. Right. There are two things that you said in your intro that struck me. One was about the janitor who basically employed you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about that point because people sweat me a little bit for employing young people. Like we are constant, like we keep young people on our payroll. Even right now, COVID, we're like, we got, you know, consulting opportunities for you guys to run these webinars, what have you. Um, I don't think people understand the importance especially in this capitalism, 
capitalist society that we exist in of making sure that young people get have jobs. That's right. Right. And resources and skills. So speak to that just a little bit more about what that did for you to be able to earn your own money. Man, at first it taught me a lot of work ethic. Like you want something, you better go get it. My parents were not going to buy me anything. You know, my parents were the parents. I put food on the table. You have a house. What else do you want? Like they didn't see anything. There was nothing else there. And they were working full-time jobs just trying to do that. Right. And so for me, it was a way in which I could feel like I had something of my own, that I had something that nobody could take away, that I was working for something. And if I want it, you got to work for it. Ain't nobody's coming to give it to you. Mm-hmm. There's no saviors coming. You want something, you better work for it. And I'm just grateful that, you know, that man just took an opportunity to say, this kid over here, she always here. Let me just give her a job. But it instilled so much work effort in me. It's still so much confidence in me, time management in me. Yeah. I'm 12 years old. I got to get up and go to work. You know, and money management. I was able yeah. to save, I think that summer I saved like 250 I bought my own school clothes. I yeah. bought my own school supplies. And, you know, my mother was like, wow, thank you. You know, yeah. thank you. So it's just, it's independence. But it's also, you know, a head start in a world where you're going to have to learn how to manage this thing or it manages you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I commend you for giving youth jobs because they not only they need it for the financial situations that they're coming from in their homes. um, But even if you're a youth who come from a good home and you might have money, you still got to learn how to manage this world. Yeah, that's what's up. So the other thing. Um, Because we could talk about that all day, too. (laughs) But the other thing I want you to talk about is the difference. So you were talking about the difference between what you got in your community and Mm -hmm. then what it was like in teaching. Did that impact the the, the researcher and the professor that you are today, seeing that difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of, you know, why I want to write and I want to talk and I want to teach and I want to do work that's about community. Mm -hmm. Because I know what it did for me. And, you know, I I talk about this in the book a little bit is that, you know, I'm going to, I was able to do what I was able to do. Not because I was a good kid. I was a good kid. I didn't get in trouble. You know, I told a lot of jokes, but I, I I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a bad kid. Like Mm -hmm. I wasn't one of those kids walking around like disrespecting people. And even though kids that do that, they have their reasons. Yeah. You know, but I was just, I was just a little skinny kid who just was like bouncing around, wanting to play basketball. But what I saw was that if I couldn't put a basketball through a pool, there would have been no college. Mm. Even being the kid that I was, I didn't get into fights. I didn't get into trouble. I was very respectful. I was very manable. Even with all, I did everything right. And if there was no basketball who knew I was going to grow to be 6'2 and who knew I was going to have a hell of a jump shot that put 35 points on the on the on the board again that was and so I've always been grateful thankful and dealing with survivor remorse Mm. because I wasn't the smartest kid I wasn't I wasn't the kid who was in the books I was just a kid who was fortunate enough to put a ball through a hoop Mm. and that's the problem that I see it is that number one, the resources were given to me because I could put a ball through. Mm. And number two, it took all those resources for me to get one kid out the hood. It took everything. 
it took a full community. It took teachers bending the rules. It took my athletic director who became like my second mom, Mrs. Knight, to pull every string in the book. For instance, my SATs, I couldn't get that SAT. I couldn't get that SAT score for the life of me. I took it three times. And it was going to get to a point where I was going to have to redshirt my first year because mm. I couldn't get the SAT score. Oh, wow. Miss Knight, my athletic director, who eventually became like my mom, um, she was like, I found a the basketball coach at another high school. He just married this Jamaican lady who's an SAT coach. Okay. $5 I paid for SAT training. $5. And that pretty wow. much paid for the pizza and soda that they we got at the end. Took my scores and went up a hundred points. I needed a seven twenty. I got a seven twenty one. Wow! Like it, it was nothing but faith and love and the Creator and people pulling for me. Yeah. Miss Knight, Miss Knight said. So I went to a vocational high school. So when you go to a vocational high school, you don't take four years of math. Mm-hmm. You don't take four years of science. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting recruited by all the top schools in the country. And they get my transcripts and they're like, yo, what you been doing, sis? Where, where, where you been? I'm in a shop class. <laughs> like, I'm in shop. Wow. So I've done everything. I'm like a B, high B, low B student. But I can't go to a four-year school. Wow. I can't go to a D1 school because I don't have the, I don't have four years of math, four years of English. Miss Knight says, I got you. You go to night school. Wow. And I'm going to tell some of these teachers, you know, all these little free lunches you got because you were a senior, gone. You're going to take English twice a day and we're going to double up. And that's how you're going to get those credits. Wow. It took, I mean, it took all of that. I got the SAT tutoring. I got night school. I got Miss Knight bending the rules. It took all of that to get one little kid from the hood to college. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be that hard. So for me, when I think about community, I know what it can do, but I know it drains the community. Mm Mm-hmm. So we need more resources. We need more folks in the community doing this work. We need you to have a a head start to come in, to come in ready to learn. Yep. Right. And that's good teachers. That's good pre, you know, education before they even get to school. That's books in the home, all of those things. That's important because it takes so much because our system is so rigged against black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just, you know, I'm just always grateful to Rochester, New York. Yeah. You know, so I shout them out, Rock City, all day, because I know what my community did for one little black girl to get out. And it shouldn't be that hard. No, it should never be that hard. But it was all, it's also a beautiful story of, again, yeah. of community and how it can come together. And for me, I mean, I'm thinking about, again, folks who will listen to this podcast in the community, grassroots mm-hmm. organizations organizations that more represent the nonprofit industrial complex, but they're still, you know, in the community. Um, you're telling, you're, you're, you're illustrating to them what should be done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was shown to me cause it was done for me. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was just amazing people. I had another one by the name of Miss James. Miss James is about, I'm six, two. And I was tall kid. Miss James is probably five, one. If that, and she's this little, little lady. And Miss James ran the Boys and Girls Club with an iron fist. I mean, iron fist. And she would get over the intercom, freeze, and you would see kids 
do anything possibly human to freeze at that moment. <laughs> I mean, you would, I mean, you would just, whatever you were doing, right. food falling, when she said freeze, the whole, I mean, we're talking about 300 kids frozen. And she with an iron fist. And I remember one day I was in the back of the Boys and Girls Club person up a storm. Mother. And it was like one of those moments in a TV show. And the kids like, damn, she behind you. I'm just, just going piping off. Go piping off. She taps me on the shoulder. I'm like, Miss James. She said, you know, Miss Love, I'm so disappointed in you. And she walked away. When I tell you, I probably did not. That was probably maybe 13, 14 years old. I probably did not curse again until at least 25. Until at least 25. Respect. Respect. And I called her on her birthday probably like six months ago. We laughed about that story. She's like, I remember you up there cursing. Just putting stuff together that probably didn't even need to go together. Just cursing because you can curse. Just ooh, out there, out there. But I mean, it was the fear. She put the fear of God in me. Miss mm-hmm. James, I mean, grown men. When Miss James said freeze, I don't care who you were. You could be an executive walking through the Boys and Girls Club on a grant. Did Miss James say freeze? You need to freeze, huh? I mean, I just grew up with these strong, strong women. And I had, again, you know, this I talk about in the books that I had these amazing black men in my life. Yep. Who protected me yeah to beady to beady right to beady was yeah. i grew up in fits you know so it was amazing just to think back of all these men you know i was i, I felt really grateful to write the book and talk about all these beautiful black men that i had that were my coaches that were my mentors like right. Tabidi, that believed in me loved me and protected me i remember one time we went to we went to do a tournament at a, a, a boys group home and I was the only girl there. And I'm like, yo, I was good. I was good. So it was just, I mean, I just had, and again, I always couch it. I know that my story is unique because I can put a ball through a hoop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I was protected in a way in which that many black girls are not because I can put a ball through a hoop. Yeah. So, you know, it's always again, that survivor's guilt that yeah. I'm here and I'm flourishing and I, and I know why it has so much to do with our consumption of sports and how we put sports over everything. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to benefit from that yeah. again, rig system. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the abolitionist teaching network. Yeah. And let's talk about just abolitionist work and education and maybe even abolitionist work in the nonprofit industrial complex. Chair to sit down. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, a big reason, again, why I wanted to write a book about abolitionist teaching had everything to do with where I'm from. I'm from upstate New York, from Rochester, New York. I grew up about four to five miles from where Frederick Douglass wrote the North Star. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hope by Hope Cemetery, which is around the corner from my house, is where he's buried. Yeah. And the problematic Susan B. Anthony is buried. Yes. Um, (laughs) So in my neighborhood where I grew up, there's still some safe houses. Wow. from the Underground Railroad that are there. So, I, I mean, I grew up with this. I mean, that and that was part of my community. You know, when I was a kid there, they were telling that story. We went on the walks. We know we know who, we know where we, we did. Mm-hmm. You know, Rochester, New York is 65 miles or 65 miles, 70 miles from Canada. Mm. 
So we tell, you know, we learn those stories. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to write, I wanted to do, number one, put my city on, talk about where I'm from, and the great work that Black folks and white folks and Latino folks and Native American folks did as abolitionists. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't talk enough about how we as Americans got together and did something amazing. And that was trying to abolish this thing called slavery. Mm -hmm. The Underground Railroad freed over 100,000 enslaved Africans. That's a network. That is amazing. And so I wanted to say, okay, how do we bring something that revolutionary into education? Because I was hearing and having conversations with folks saying abolish ICE, abolish the police. And I'm like, hell yeah. But also, what do we, how can we bring that mentality into the field of education? And that's where abolitionist teaching was birthed to say two things. The system that we have is corrupt. Mm -hmm. The system that we have doesn't work. So we need to abolish this. Yeah. We need to don't tear it down, but build something more beautiful in the same time. And so that's what abolitionists have always done. But the one thing that I wanted people to understand is that to be an abolitionist isn't just always about tearing something down. It's about also tearing down the structures that create that, that space. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's so much of Erica Minor and David Stallball type of work is that yeah. we're just we're going to also look at these conditions that created the prison industrial complex. Right. Right. You want, if you, because we know how disaster capitalism works and we know how capitalism works, we can say tear that building down, they're going to build one down the street. So you better destroy the structure. And too often we don't talk enough in education about the structure, you know, because we're always talking about reform. What you mm-hmm. trying to reform? <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't addressed the structure that mm-hmm. you even need that reform. Yep. So that really birthed, those ideas really birthed, you know, abolitionist teaching and, and the book. Yeah. So as, in, in today's context, you know, in, in the midst of this pandemic, and I'm thinking about the article that you just put out, um, <laughs> because that was an important article, but we have this opportunity to reimagine, right, what yeah. things will look like. And the abolitionist part of us really needs to, you know, not only exist, but like we need to really bring that forward right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do you mm-hmm. think? I mean, what, what's your whole view on post COVID-19 schooling <laughs> and like what it's going to look like? And if, and if folks are going to step up to do the abolitionist work they need to do. So, you know what? I really wanted to write that article because I was, I was encouraged and I was pissed off at the exact same time. I think that's pretty much what it means to be black. Right? You gotta be encouraged, <laughs> yes. but you, oh, you pissed off all the time, but you gotta be encouraged because you go crazy. Um, so I was encouraged by what I was seeing happening in response to COVID-19. So as I talked about in the article, oh, you giving laptops to the students? Okay, you couldn't do that last week, but cool, we got it. Oh, you yeah. giving books? All these things can go home? Oh, they couldn't go home two months ago, but cool. Oh, you're going to do away with standardized testing this year? Keep that same energy. <laughs> so it was just like, wow, look how we, all yeah. the, oh, you need to trust teachers? Oh, you're going to, you're going to, oh, you, so how are you going to judge if this child, oh, you need to trust teachers? Oh, okay. Oh, you know who you really need? You need parents now yes. because these <laughs> kids can't function without their parents. Yep. Oh, so let me see. You got to trust teachers. You need parents. You're throwing away tests and resources are going home. That sounds like what we should have did before. Yep. And now since they've shown us that hand, why go back? Why go back? And I hope and I hope that what I'm hoping is that 
teachers and parents and community folk are witnessing and why I wanted to write that article say, look, what they said we had to do, actually, we really don't have to do it. They just showed us. Yep. But realize they're going to turn this thing around when schools reopen and act like all that foolishness was important. Mm -hmm. It was not. So how about you keep that same energy? Mm -hmm. For instance, and I talked about in the piece, the superintendent, which I was very encouraged, the superintendent of Georgia, school superintendent of Georgia, the whole state, he wrote a letter to everybody saying, hey, we want compassion over compliance. Yep. <laughs> Word? So 2021, can we get that compassion over compliance? Mm -hmm. He said we, teachers are being too rigid and we want teachers to be more flexible. Why does it take a pandemic to do what's right in education? So I really hope that teachers are peeping, like, you know, peep game, like mm -hmm. peep game. This is what they're saying they can do. I want them to stay doing that. Yeah. And I, that's the revolution. We have a time to say, we're not going back. Yeah. That was not normal. That was not healthy. Mm -hmm. We're not going back. And we have an opportunity as, a, as teachers to actually say it yes. because you just showed us what's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. James Baldwin says it best. I can't trust what you say because I see what you do. Yep. So I, I just saw I just saw what you could do. I just saw what you could do. You told me you can't do those things, but I just saw what you can do. So you know what? Keep it. And I hope parents are saying, you know, my kids are playing outside. My kids are doing this. My kids are being creative. We want that same energy. Yep. Or my kids are fell behind. And what are you going to do about it? That same compassion that you had. I want that same energy, yep. that same creativity that you give it. I want that same energy for my kids who are not behind. Yep. Right. And so I was on talking with some folks just earlier today and I said, listen, we need to do what's equitable, not what's fair coming back. Yep. And that part. And they don't want, you know, that's what we need. I don't want, I don't hear what's fair. I want to hear what's equitable because yeah. everybody's saying, oh, you know, these pan the pandemic has exacerbated the inequalities. Okay. <laughs> So that means, you know, we got to do what's equitable then. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I think we'll see. on my end, I'm really, I'm really waiting to see how teacher unions organize around mm -hmm. this. I'm really trying to see, you know, cause I, I, I feel like I already know what schools are going to do, but yeah. I feel like it's the folks, the folks like teachers who have numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Parents, students, communities. I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's a sort of, uh, a mass organizing awareness, something that pushes them to push schools because schools yeah. won't do it un unless we push them. No, they're allergic to change mm -hmm. all day, yeah. all day. So this is okay. So there's a lot and I'm looking at the time, like, see, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> we Man. talked about this before we started. Yes, I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question, how, how is your work, the work that you're doing around abolitionist teaching, how is it helping to reimagine youth work? How does it contribute to that process of reimagining youth work? I think that that's a great question. The work, you know, first, let me just say how inspired I have been by you and the work that you're doing. Um, you know, I've had an opportunity to come out to see y'all in the IE, do what y'all do. And it's been amazing mm -hmm. and motivating and inspiring for me to see what a black queer woman can do in creating community and building. And so for me, as someone thinking about how do we get abolitionist teaching out here, 
I understand now the programming that has to be done mm, with okay. I understand now the the building that has to be done with you that you have done. And so when I think about, you know, abolitionist teaching and what it can mean for youth organizations, um, it's really about getting young people, for me, my perspective, to understand why these situations are here. Mm. And because, and I've heard you say this, um, I got this quote from you watching one of your videos when you talk, does Angela Davis give that great quote about the shoulders? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, that young people can see further because, because they're standing they're on our shoulders. shoulders. Yeah, that's right. I got that yeah. quote from you. And so I'm, I'm really inspired by that idea is that, you know, if we're going to say we want a new world or we want a new educational system, it can only happen through youth. Yeah. That's the, because what I think should be done, I'm, as soon as I open up my mouth, I'm dating. <laughs> True. Right. And so, you know, my visions for new worlds has to be informed by them. Yeah. And it has to be to a certain point led by them because they understand what it means to be a kid. They understand what it means to be a student. I don't. I have a good understanding because I study it. I talk about it. I ask them. But right. there's so much of who they are and the experiences that they have needs to be authentically implanted in the work of abolitionists. Because we can't tear down something and then build something that they didn't even ask for. Right. Truth. Like, I didn't even ask for this. This is the same old group. Oh, no. And the kid's looking at you like, come on, man. I thought you had a little more sense than this. So, you know, it has to be so much um, developed with, not like with them in mind. No, with, with them right there right. in the lab, thinking through how schools can be different. Yeah. A lot of adults don't want to do that work, though. They say they do. They say they do. But then when it's time, they like, mm, somebody just make the decision. Yeah, but you know, I think I think I always joke, but I I'm, I'm joke, but I'm I'm serious. I think as soon as you turn thirty, you done. <laughs> you be like, oh, these kids, look, I can't believe what they doing. I can't believe they out here cursing. I can't. You're just there, fam. It's true. But I so I think you know you want you you say you want you voice, but not authentically. Um, I think you get to a certain age, you get a little crude. And so when the kid tell you straight up the way it's supposed to be, no chaser, you know, but I was listening to your podcast that you had, um, your first podcast. Oh, with Dominique. With Dominique. Yeah. And, you know, that individual saying, hey, stop asking the people who always are applauding, always love your work and ask the folks who like, nah, this could be a little bit better. Yeah. And that's what you always do. Yeah. You keep it 100 with you. Like, you know, this was, this was tight. This was cute. But um, you're like, okay. And you have to be open to that criticism. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what nonprofits, teachers, school administrators, because all these folks are going to be listening, give them some strategies, give them some real life things they can do right now to get right mm -hmm. <laughs> and start being more innovative in their work with young people. So I think, you know, I think the first thing is to have multiple consciousnesses. So what I mean by that is that you got to have, I think there are things as grownups that we have to do, mm -hmm. particularly in, in different roles. So you have to have different levels of consciousness. Like I, I'm an educator. I got paperwork to do. I have bureaucracies that I have the answer to. And every, all of that is, you're right. But then you got to be able to see through 
that really only about 60% of that is actually what you got to do. Mm. The other 40%, they really even, not even going to look at. Now, can you figure out what that 40% is that's really trash, that's really just bottled down your time, and do the 60 so you can give your kids that 40 plus the 100 you're already going to get? Mm. But I think so times as administrators or not folks in the nonprofit world or teachers, we get bottled down with the system. Yeah. And then eventually we are doing more work for the system than actually for kids. And so you got to figure out, you got to be able to navigate these systems in ways in which that you don't let it take your spirit. You don't let it take your soul and you don't let it take all your time. So the work that you actually want to do, you can do it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard. You know, I tell I, I'm with first year teachers or people who want to be teachers all the time. And, you know, the worst thing they say, Dr. Love, you know, it's a lot of paperwork. I think it's going to be a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of things to manage. It's a lot of meetings. When am I teaching? Yeah. That, that is, you know, or I'm running a nonprofit and I ain't seen the people that I'm supposed to be running a nonprofit for because I'm in the meetings. You got to learn how to manage, right? These different levels of who you have to be. So you got to be that professional. Boom, you get it. But you, if, if you think you're going to get everything done they're asking you to get done, and then 40% of that is like, mm, you didn't even, you like, did you even look at that? No, we didn't look at it. Did you, I spent, you know, I, I wrote the grant. I spent six, seven hours on the grant. I don't know. No, you know, we didn't look at it. You know, we're, we're done with our funding stream for this year. Well, hold on. I just spent, I just spent, hold on. I just spent three weeks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you got to, you got to figure out, you know, I just think you have to be someone who's listening to people, watching what people do, not what they say. Mm-hmm. And um, being clever and thinking on your feet about how you're going to navigate these spaces to do the work that you know you want to do and not get bottled down and bottleneck in all the craziness and the bureaucracy of these systems. Yeah. And that's that's critical because folks get burnout. I mean, teachers are leaving. Nonprofit folks are leaving. I mean, you know, education sees teachers leaving as a big problem, but those folks that are sort of on the bottom rung in nonprofits, the mm-hmm. same situation. The front, the folks that are front facing to the young people into the community, they get they yeah. get tired, 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 and they're like, "I'm I'm out. I'm gonna go do yep. something that pays more, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Where I don't have to stress out as much." Um, because then they're also really the recipient of all of the stuff that's happening from top down. Yeah. Um, but they're the ones that have to face the community and tell them. Yeah. Right. And interact with them when programs get cut, et cetera, et cetera. So self-care yeah. is, is, is real. We've been hearing self-care across the board from, from everybody. Self-care and self-work. Self-care, self-work. And like Angela Davis said, you know, self-care has to be radical self-care because that means it's communal. Yep. Right. Yeah, you sitting good, but everybody around you ain't good. You just la 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 la, and everybody around you like ah, that ain't you know. You got to have radical self care. That's that's you know driven by your community. Yeah, absolutely. Whew. From our final question, because I really yes. I'm like, there's so many more things. <laughs> <laughs> From my final question, in your freedom dream, mm. what does the future of youth work look like? You know, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, from my perspective, the future of youth work has so much to do with healing, mm-hmm. with so much to do with youth 
just being affirmed in who they are, being loved for who they are, being confident in who they are, and finding that joy, you know, and feeling respected for knowing what they know as young people. Yeah. And I think we have, that's the foundation of a good humanity. That's the foundation of building something where people feel valued, people feel loved, people can find joy. Um, and black and brown youth particularly know that um, they are free. Yeah. And so I want a future where black and brown kids actually know that they are free. And what free means being able to walk down the street and not be harassed at all. Like yeah. free means you walk down the street and a white person walk down the street and you're not moving because they walking down the street. Mm-hmm. We both gonna say, excuse me, and then we gonna walk down the street. I'm not moving, right? Free, like freedom. I want our future to be filled with freedom, with mm-hmm. ideas about our freedom. And then to a point where we don't gotta think about this anymore. Yeah. You know, we don't got to think about, oh, man, I just, I just, all I want us to think about is the beauty of being black. Yeah. Not not all the ills that come with being black, just the beauty of being black and what that affords you. Right. To see it as something that's a shield of armor, like a badge of armor. Like this is this thing that I got on my skin, man, please. I'm protected. I'm good. Yeah. That's what I want. You know, I want us as black people and as, as, as young people to grow up. Um, just thinking that everything about them to their nose, their face, their hair, this is just like, we just a shit. Like I just, whew. you know, I always listen to um, Donnie Hathaway's version of Young, young Gifted and Black. Yeah. Um, I love Nina Simone's version, but Donnie Hathaway, he has this part where he says, yo, I ain't trying to put nobody down. But he's like, I ain't trying to put nobody down. My God, it's so good to be black. Yeah. And that's, that's what I, you know, that's what I want for the future. I see it. <laughs> I'm in my, I'm just in my head thinking that, that, that that's going to exist. And like Dominique Morgan said, it'll smell like cocoa butter too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, grandma, keep that cocoa butter. <laughs> you got to. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. It was so good to talk to you, to see you. You, you, you are my sister in this work. So thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. So y'all, we have been listening to Dr. Bettina Love, who again is an award-winning author and the Athletic Association Endowed Professor at the University of Georgia. I'm going to make sure that in the episode notes, you get a link to buy a copy of her book and also a link to her most recent article. And anything else I feel like you need to see that she has put pen to paper (laughs) about, um, Definitely keep thinking about this idea of what it means uh, to be an abolitionist in this work as we move forward. Y'all keep doing the good work out there.